Hello and welcome to episode 23 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the Celestial Colonnade, Shane Beeps. (laughs) What's up, Stan? How are you this week? It's good to be back home. Yeah, it's good to be back home in your arms as well. Also with us here in Chicago, the Wall of Omens, Dave Harberger. I came here today to say one thing, and that is, I stand Stanislav. I stand Stanislav. Thanks, buddy. I'm glad Did I, I just taught right? you what that word means. <laughs> Did I use that right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you used it right. <laughs> Last but not least, it's the cataclysmic Gear Hulk, Zach Colhan. Thank you. I, that, I really appreciate that, Stan. You destroy a lot of target permanents. What can I say? I destroy a lot of things, let's be honest. <laughs> I suppose you make your opponents sacrifice them instead. On this week's episode, we take a look at the first batch of preview cards from Modern Horizons. Then we dive into blue-white control, and Shane explains why reactive decks are the single best strategy in Modern. Some of his <laughs> thoughts might surprise you. Finally, we wind down with a listener question. But first, some housekeeping. Special thanks to our newest patrons. Brian W., Brian from Cloud District Music, Ben S., Matt L., William H., John N., Mark S., Tyler T., Alec L., Ian S., Matt M., Kojo, James K., Travis C., and Juanita S. Oh, man, take a breath, That is amazing. Yes. Man, you guys are killing it. Woo. Yeah, our fans are really amazing. We appreciate your support so, so very much. I can't believe I get to read off so many names on just week two of the Patreon. But if you too would like to join our Patreon and have your name heard on this podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down. All one word. Yeah, I think we're all really humbled, proud, and honestly a little surprised by all the support we're seeing so far from all y'all. Um, we've already reached our first stretch goal, and we're already talking to a few professional podcast editors out there, see who's going to be the best fit for us. So thank you so much for that support that you've thrown our way. Um, and all those who have signed up, who haven't signed up so far, please check out the Patreon page, like Stan said. Look at the tier rewards, see if you have a few extra bucks a month to help support us. Help us continue to grow and improve. Our next stretch goal is going to be working with a professional comic book artist to design some custom tokens for our patrons. And you know that arrangement's not finalized, but I'm not going to say who it is. Uh, but believe me when I say they're going to be very, very cool, and you're going to like them quite a bit. Yeah, and we've already got an awesome community brewing over on the new Dive Down Super Secret Slack server, talking about everything from Modern Horizon previews, deck brews, John Wick movies came out. (laughs) So shout out to everyone who's made our early foray into Patreon and community building very lively and super successful. Yeah, the Slack's been awesome so far, right, guys? It's been fun to talk modern with all the listeners. Oh, it's been great. I've I've loved making little new emojis every time I want to make a joke. So that's been really fun. It's been really fun. It's been really hard for me to stay out of it when I'm at work. Oh, yeah. I I love you guys, but I do have to do work sometimes. Oh, Mr. Director. Mm. You know, inviting people to a private chat or, you know, group message is risky. You're really putting your life on the line when you invite a stranger (laughs) to a group text. 
but so far everyone's been awesome so i feel like we're just chatting with friends that we've had for a long time who at the same time we're really just meeting for the first time so it's pretty far out yeah we had some itunes reviews this week too so thanks to i'm gonna butcher this i apologize i think it's uh, zhao sheng 14420 mr kai guy and all the way from germany is darba darba i think you stuck the landing on those well done yeah thank you and thanks for the reviews everybody now with that out of the way let's jump over to zach at the news desk yeah so we're doing things a little bit differently we're not going over a tournament result per se this time we're going to uh, mention one but first we're going to talk about the ban and restricted announcement that came today so big or small no changes to modern but they did something that they've been doing more lately, which is talking about decks that they have their eye on. So although Allosaurus Rider or Microsynth Latest didn't actually eat the ban, they did mention them. They mentioned the Neoform combo, Karn the Great Creator, and they mentioned the Celestial Kieran Armageddon, quote-unquote yeah. Armageddon combo. I'm okay with no changes. I'm glad they're keeping an eye on it, but the format's going through so many changes right now that it's nice to see things shake out before you know the benevolent R&D intervenes. Yeah, what they said specifically was they said that the play and the win rates of those decks aren't really a cause for alarm right now. And then they they said especially because Modern Horizons is coming around the corner. They also said that they were happy with the London Mulligan at the Mythic Championship. And they're, they, they also would not make any predictive bans before it was tested more in the format. But basically what they meant by that is we're not going to ban Allosaurus Rider before we institute the London Mulligan simply because it seems dangerous. We're going to wait and see. That's pretty interesting. I think they also know that there are some straight up bangers in Modern Horizons, uh, yeah. some of which we've gotten a taste of so far. But I think there's, you know, my over under on cards that we're going to actually see play in Modern for Modern Horizons was originally 20. Yeah. And I think it's uh, given the way the spoilers are looking so far, I think it's a lot, a lot, a lot more. Yeah, I, I would wager we see at some point like 90% of them being played at first. And then mm. I think they're going to dwindle down. But I think people are going to jam almost everything at first. Well, now we know who the optimist and the pessimist on the podcast are. <laughs> 90, 90 would be, what would that be? That would be uh, 225 of yep. the cards in the set. Uh, now that you say that, I'm going to double down and say maybe even 92%. <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned in the MTGO practice rooms, it's that anything goes. <laughs> well, I don't know. One, one time I joined a room, I played my snow-covered mountain. Someone disconnected, remade the room with the comment, tiered decks only. So, I don't know. <laughs> that is one of my favorite Zach M Magic Online stories. It's so good. <laughs> Can't catch a break. So, this week we didn't have any quote-unquote modern tournaments worth discussing. There was the Magic Online Championship, which is really cool, and we'll talk about that in a second. But only four rounds of this big tournament were modern. So, although there are modern results, it's not really reflective of the format as a whole or anything. Because these people have to play other formats along the way as well. Exactly. And an SCG Syracuse was standard. Uh, the modern classic there was pretty straightforward. Although we will highlight a couple of the decks from it in our dive down since yeah. uh, Blue White Control actually did well at that tournament. Right. So this week for the breakdown, we're going to look at a few spoilers from Modern Horizons that have been uh, trickling out for the past few days. So there's already about 35 cards released and there have been honestly a lot of really interesting things coming up so far. And so our plan for this, we're going to give ourselves like a hard stop at like two minutes, 30 seconds a card, because we know we can you know, go on and on about stuff like this. So I'll have a little timer in the background. If you hear a beep at two minutes, 30 seconds, we basically got to stop. So are you going to... Nice. Are you going to drop in the 24 tick like from 
that cool TV show. <laughs> I was actually beep, planning to use this one. Beep, beep. Look at that look of glee on Stan's face when he presses the button. The bellboy is here, yeah. So one thing I want to say really quick is, before we dive in here, we know there were a lot more cards than four that are very cool out of the spoilers that even come up so far. We are putting together plans for what we're going to do for a, a large spoiler episode or episodes on Modern Horizon, but we just had a few we wanted to talk about today. Our dive down is pretty deep today, and so we want to make sure we save enough time for that in the episode. So that's why we're going with lightning round for this first set of Horizons spoilers. Yeah, and just to pull the curtain back a little bit for our listeners, we are recording this on Monday. So you can kind of understand what cards we already know of and what cards we don't know of by the time the episode drops. So there may be huge, impactful new cards that we're super excited about between today and release date that we just don't know about yet. And we'll get to that on whatever episode we get to that. Right on. Let's get in. So I believe I'm starting us off here. A very big deal yesterday was the announcement that the basic lands would be snow-covered lands, and they're also going to be full-art snow-covered lands. L- literally, huzzah! When this was an- yes, huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. When this was announced, I started getting Twitter notifications on my phone. People in my LGS walked up to me with their phones and go, Zach, have you seen this yet? It is so very exciting for me. We've only seen the snow support cards in blue-green so far, and I-, I think that that'll probably be the limited type for that, but I'm just excited to see what this unleashes. There hasn't been any support for snow since cold snap and anything that can make a really fringe deck like scred better or create a new archetype is just very exciting to me this this is just i'm off the wall about this seriously i've been riding this high for two days now i don't i don't think it'll stop so i think that i've been playing red green scred in the past for a little bit and getting some more support cards in green especially a fetchable duel which you know, that's speculation on my part. Who knows what will happen? But there's so much potential here. That's what I'm excited about. I don't know. We've only, like I said, only two actual snow permanent so far. But I'm really excited about what this could be. Yeah, so you are you super hyped just because of what could potentially happen in the set? Because it's not like the Snowlands are new to modern. They just are already doing some snow support. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've been around since Cold Snap, like we said, but the potential of more snow creatures, especially pushed modern playable snow creatures, is making me wondering about sleeving up Scrut again and putting Prison to the side. We'll see. Well, it seems to me that one of the themes in the set for snow is Simic, which is sort of surprising so far. Yeah, right? Yeah, from what I understand, that's going to be the limited archetype for that and probably black rattle into being goblins from what we've seen so far, but... Even if we get one green playable or one blue playable card and allows me to stretch Scred into another color, I think that's okay with me. Could be pretty interesting. Yeah, and you were testing red-green Christmas Scred a little while ago, so maybe this could be some of the tools you need to push that over the edge. Exactly. I, I was going 4-0 at the LGS. I was going 3-2 in leagues, but having good results locally. So I think that one more card, especially if I can Blood Braid Elf into it, would be ideal. Wow. With time to spare. Nice job, Zach. Thank you. The chill dude. <laughs> I don't think anyone's described me as chill ever, but thank you. <laughs> no, I think it's really rad too, Zach. I agree. It's uh, it, it bodes well. Uh, scrying sheets already shot up in value, so yeah. I have my two foils and I'm done. So here we are. Hashtag MTG Finance. Yeah, don't forget, Zach. Are you gonna get uh, full art? snow-covered mountains foil? I am. I'm going to do um, a mix match of some of the foil cold snap ones and some of the foil uh, modern horizons ones. I wish you good luck with that. Thank you. All right, Stan, you're up. All right. So I also picked a land and that was prismatic view. 
and although I'm not necessarily celebrating the way Zach is because I haven't been eager for basic fetchable lands in the past, I think this is going to be a really promising card for Modern. And for those who are not familiar, Prismatic View is a non-basic land that has tap, pay one life, sacrifice Prismatic View, search your library for a basic land card, put on the battlefield, shuffle your library. So it's essentially uh, Evolving Wilds that lets you bring a basic land in untapped. And eats your life. It does eat one of your lives. One of your 20 lives. So it does fetch Snowlands. Zach, you might be happy to hear that. I guess other fetch lands did as well, but now you can fetch more Snowlands if you want. (laughs) All the Snowlands. I think the obvious... I think the obvious benefit of this card will probably be in eldrazi based decks because now they can fetch wastes which is something that that deck had probably been struggling with a bit in the past i i would say that i didn't realize this until you put this in the notes but i totally agree when i was playing that eldrazi stompy white deck uh with chalice made a big i would have liked that a couple times yeah i can see this just being a one or two of in a lot of decks across the format and i don't think it's necessarily going to be more prevalent in two or more prevalent in three color decks because of the role of blood moon in the format and this being a new out to that i think gives it some interesting play that we haven't really seen before and seeing watsy experiment with land types and what fetches can do i think is probably just going to make decks a little bit more consistent as we move forward into the format yeah, this is a card that I think is really hard to judge its overall impact. It could be a thing where it just totally wrecks the format and no one saw it coming, or it sees play in like one weird elves list or something. I, I think it's cool, and it's definitely something they haven't done before, so it'll be interesting to see where it slots into in the end. Yeah, it's bizarre. I, I have no way how to predict its utility, because I think I'm just so used to the, like, the fetch shock mana base in modern. I don't really know how to mentally approach it right now. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think the waste is very cool. So yeah, I think it adds something to the format. It doesn't really take anything away. All right, we're done. So I got to pack a lot into this two minutes and 30 seconds, I think, because the card I chose is Force of Negation. Yeah, that's a big card. Now, okay, so here's what it does. It's one blue-blue. It's an instant, and it is basically a force of will. It's a pitch card that lets you counter a non-creature spell. Here's what the actual text says. If it's not your turn, you may exile a blue card from your hand rather than pay this spell's mana cost. Counter target non-creature spell. If that spell is countered this way, exile it instead of putting it into its owner's graveyard. Oof. A lot of stuff Yeah, so how is is this different than force of will? So I'm going to go through and say I think this is a really well-designed card, and every line of this card is really well-considered, and it means something specific. So let's break it down phrase by phrase. If it's not your turn... This is the first key point on the card, and it's a really big deal because Force of Will does not have a restriction on when you can play it, and this card does. The key here is that it only works when your opponent is trying to do stuff, basically, and not really when you're trying to do stuff. So much like Dovin's Veto, it's a good defensive card. It's not really one that can be used on offense to kind of force through your own combos. So that makes yes. it a little bit more on the fair side. The next clause on the on the card says, you may exile a blue card from your hand rather than pay this spell's mana cost. Note that you do not have to pay a life in order to do that like you do with Force of Will. Small, but that is a little bit of a difference here that I think um, kind of adds up over time. The next thing that's different about it from Force of Will is the next sentence says, counter target non-creature spell. 
Mm-hmm. Force of Will does not have any restriction on the card that you can counter with it, but Force of Negation does. It kind of makes me sad that I dubbed Dovin's Veto Negrate last week because I kind of feel like this is Negrate. But um, the narrow focus means that it's a target for getting rid of nonsense of the nonsense. Like the most targeted things, the most abusable things, that's what this card is for. You can't force someone's four drop Kalidus, for example, but you can uh, counter their Neoform or something like that. The big important distinction here is that you can't force someone's mana dork on turn one that would cripple their hand that's kind of tenuous already. The last thing clause that's important here is that it says exile the spell if it's countered. So you can't do any weird surgical extraction stuff to take out someone's all of someone's uh, win conditions if you happen to snag something that's really important to their deck on turn one when they're trying to go off. They're not totally dead when they use it. I'm going to give you a 10-second extension, Dave, because this card's cool. So here's the, here's the thing. I really love this card. I'm really glad that they brought something like this in the format because it's just kind of a safety valve. I think it's a card that's going to do the job that it needs to do, which is going to help people... Uh, fight against decks that leverage fast mana without just going through and banning all the fast mana. The weird thing is, I think this is a card that might help define the format without really being played that much, because I'm not convinced it's a main deck card. I think it might be a sideboard card in some quantity. I think it might be something that, just by it being around, people will be hesitant to do stuff that's really broken. Yeah, I think it's a brilliantly designed card. And I totally agree with your point about it being more of a sideboard card than main deck that was my first assessment as well and people were really excited and rightfully so i think free counter magic is pretty big and we don't have a lot of that in modern but i don't think it's going to be useful against every deck so yeah i think it's a little bit like what's gone on with rest in peace recently in blue eye control where there was a meta at the myth championship where it's worth running rest in peace in the main and i think that's going to happen sometimes with this card too all right you got your bonus time so i'm going to run right into seasoned pyromancer or as i want to call him one zesty boy so this red mythic is one red red for a 2-2 human shaman with the text when he enters the battlefield discard two cards then draw two cards for each non-land card discarded this way create a 1-1 red elemental creature token and then three red red exile seasoned pyromancer from your graveyard create two one one red elemental creature tokens so first off uh they got the same artist they use for young pyromancer cynthia shepherd that is very cool um this seems like it has a pretty big impact to me it's good in the early game helps you go wider it puts four power across three bodies it's good in the late game can help you refill the hand if you're hellbent um, on a stalled board, you can be drawing cards for some card advantage, or you can be generating some tokens if you have something like extra lands or a less useful spell that you need to toss. If it's in the graveyard, you can use it as a mana sink for a little extra value. That's more tertiary for sure. There's a lot of things that you can discard in red to make this drawback pretty negligible. Are you about to make a case for how discarding in modern is not really that bad? Uh, hold oh, on. Right. He said draw back. Get it? Because uh, you draw uh, the cards with it? Oh, nice. Okay, you're right. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just, just going to point them out again. I'm going to yeah. point them out again. Well, I like the one that's for Hollow One. Sure. Because Hollow One, I think Hollow One people might overlook that. I think that this actually has some play into Madness synergies. 
Um, I've been, I actually played against a Madness deck in this league I did. I don't think it was particularly great, but I think that this adds more to the Madness fire. And you know the same stuff. It can fuel Phoenix decks. It can, you know, you can pitch your flashback spells, stuff like that. I think people have already talked about Burn maybe wanting something like this, but I don't think it's strong enough to be in Burn because it's a turn three play that just puts two power on the board and can draw two. Um, Burn's curve needs to stay lower than this, which is why we see those spectacle cards. Yeah, I think Madness cards and Hollow One-esque synergistic strategies are something that we always see on the bubble and something that is really only one or two cards away from being really powerful. So I wonder if this is it. I hadn't thought about that before you said that, Shane. That's really smart. I I got another deck for this, by the way, and that is Bridgevine. (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) Just just saying, I've always wanted another discard outlet in that deck. All right, we're at time, so uh, we got to bounce. Can we hit the bell a couple more times? Yeah, hit it. Come on, Stan. This one's for the fans. Just a dive down nation. Oh, this rings for smile. you. The smile is so pure. <laughs> I kind of feel like we wide. close every segment from California to Sydney. From now on. <laughs> I like it. All right. That was, I like, uh, this is a, I think it's a good way to spend a not very good tournament week to talk about some spoilers without taking up a whole break, a uh, whole uh, dive down on it. We will be back where we take up a whole dive down with spoilers from oh, Modern multiple Horizons. Multiple dive though. downs, mark, I mark our words. Hey, that bell was fun, but I think my cat is freaking out. <laughs> 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 Worth it. All right, that wraps up this week's breakdown. It was fun. It was different, just like us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going to dive into blue-white control. Do we have to? Can Stay we still, is it, with is, us. Is it too late to change it? I'm going to yes. counter that comment. Yeah. <laughs> Negate. Vetoed. Negrated. Stay with us. So I want you to all to go back in time with me. To a simpler right. time, to a time where there was a little Big Daddy Harbarger. <laughs> that year was 1995. To a boy who had just discovered magic and was confused and trying to win with cards like Bayou, Scathe Zombies, Pestilence, Will of the Wisp, Sunglasses of Urza. <laughs> I was playing bad decks, but having fun times. But things can change so quickly. In that year, I started my love affair. It's lasted almost my whole life. And I'll never forget the first time I read the words card advantage. (laughs) (laughs) So pure love. It was pure love. It was love at first sight. So I had a close friend. It's actually a close friend of Shane and Shane and I's from growing up named Jonathan who got into magic with me back in in 95 and kind of knew his way around the internet a lot more than I did and was constantly like reading magic strategy articles and things like that. And one day he came into high school band where we were, we sat next to each other because we were first and second chair trumpet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not a big deal. Great detail. No big deal. You are such a first chair trumpet, Dave. (laughs) Hey, he and I traded back and forth a few times. Okay. And, um, he came in with a uh, with a printout from an article from a website called The Dojo that I don't know if uh, we've talked about a couple times on here, but was sort of the seat of magic content back in the day. And um, he came in with a printout of an article post from a guy named Brian Weissman. And he told me, David, you have to read this. It's the best. It's the best. That's exactly what he said all the time. <laughs> this is the first real strategy, uh, magic strategy article that I remember reading, understanding, and applying to basically everything. 
in some ways, card advantage was maybe the first strategic idea I understood in any game because I was at the right age for it. I was about 16, spending a lot of time on this kind of stuff and just kind of like ready to figure out how to level up. And so in some ways, I think it's the first level up I had. And I think that understanding card advantage or the concept of it is one of the first level ups that lots of people have when they play magic. So ever since then, I've been trying to put Sarah Angels with counter spells, swords to plowshares in single decks, no matter the format. And while control is not always good, it's always something, right? And it always feels like you're making decisions that mattered. Yeah, it's really what draws people to it in a lot of ways, right? Is you feel like you're making decisions, even if it's not the most powerful thing you can be doing, you at least feel like you have some agency in the game. Right. And, you know, I didn't want to tell this story to, like, establish our bona fides. I think I wanted to kind of tell the story that, you know, people have been talking about control decks and specifically talking about decks very much like what blue-white control is like in modern forever, it was one of the first strategic kind of uh, deep strategic decks that was written about a lot back 20 years ago. People have been writing about it endlessly since then. Vats of digital ink have been spilled discussing how to play it, how to build it, how to build it in various formats, how it behaves, how to do do different things, referencing Brian Weissman all the way up to the, today's archetype um, kind of heroes like Shaheen Sarani and people like that. The reason I want to bring this up is that we're not going to try to capture the totality of that today we just can't there is no way that we can make that work uh, on on our format and also you know that just would be a disservice to you to pretend that we are going to try to capture everything about control today but we do want to do is add a discussion a little give some perspective on what it was like for us to play it at this moment in time and also talk a little bit about the things that are new about it since war of the spark came out so we're going to zero in on a couple of concepts try to give some thoughts and then we will hopefully give you a little bit of a lift from there. Yeah, I like it. Good idea. Well said. Nice setup. Beautiful story. Relatable, except for all those old cards that I've never cast or seen. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually writing my doctorate thesis on the evolution of control from uh, 95 to 2015. So, I mean, pretty interesting. it's possible to do, I think, absolutely. There's so much content. And you could have a well-cited article if you were to do that. Yeah, maybe at full sale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in 95, my my decks were trying to move with, like, Frozen Shade. So I think you were a step ahead of me there, my, my friend. It took a while, but... So what's interesting about control within our group is that the four of us have somewhat different relationships with the strategy and style of deck, ranging from love to experience to hate and misunderstanding. And Zach, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I think I understand it just fine. <laughs> I think he was. I think he was speaking to me and my level of <laughs> supposed misunderstanding. So, as Dave just mentioned, longtime lover of control strategies, anything that'll get him a card advantage, a two yep. for one, sleeve it up. <laughs> anything to get the card advantage. <laughs> I haven't been playing as long as Dave, but I too have been a longtime fan of control. Just about as long as I've been playing Magic, my two favorite spells have been Counterspell and Lightning Bolt, and I love basically shutting down whatever my opponent's been doing and sometimes at the detriment of my own performance in tournaments and i am a, a new convert quote-unquote to the modern control but i've been playing i realized i thought about a control for a long time when i first started magic was around seventh edition and i received a lot of cards from my friends at the time and it was cards they weren't using so it was a huge stack of blue cards so my very first magic deck for maybe four or five months was just like a 150 card stack of like 
Counterspell, Chameleon, oh, something. It, it's a, it's t- all, t- all terrible cards. All very bad, not good blue cards that I just jammed. I think it was like 130 cards with 30 lands in it, something like that. But I, I was playing Counterspells because no one else would. So I was familiar with it. It was actually my introduction. And for me, the only control I want to play is if it's Karn, Liberated, exiling people's lands. If I'm sweeping the board with an O-Stone. If I'm exiling two permanents with a Ulamog. That's my kind of control. I mean, it is Big, a kind of stupid. control. Yeah, it's like I, I basically I like I don't like instant speed control because I think you have to be too good for it. To be honest with you, I think it's <laughs> it's it's too hard. It's it's really challenging, and it's not the kind of gameplay. It's not the game plan I want to have necessarily. Where like I'm changing my game plan based on what the other player is doing, yeah. and I think we're going to get into that. Yeah, I mean Shane's scoreboard lifetime is eight Snapcasters owned, zero Snapcasters cast. <laughs> I, I, uh, no, you're right. I think I, I think I think I maybe cast like two in paper when I was playing GDS for a little bit. Dave, how long have you been casting Snapcasters for? Uh, ever since they came out, actually. Like I, I was just getting more into mad back into Magic a second time when Innistrad came out, and I remember when Modern kind of popped at the same time. Uh, I had some friends that uh, I kind of played with, and they at the time, and they didn't want cards that were rotating out so they traded me their set of snapcasters there which was um which was awesome because i've had them for ever since then so dave mentioned card advantage but i think there's more to control as we try to understand what control is all about and i think by definition most if not all control decks are considered reactive as opposed to more aggressive decks which are proactive in that some decks proactive decks want to execute their plan reactive control decks want to win by responding to their opponent's plans until they can turn a tide and win from either behind or parity. Yeah. I feel like the first rule of control is stop them. You know, you don't put your plan into motion until you're sure that their plan has been dismantled enough or that you can handle it enough to be able to put your threats out there. Because one of the big things is that you, you know, being being a deck full of reactive cards means you have less space for cards that actually can win you the game. And so we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about how that works but that's that's the general difference between a control deck and and another type of deck is your cards deal with their cards until the coast is clear so i'm kind of stealing a thought that shane had made earlier today in our super secret slack channel that i thought i thought was pretty astute which is whenever i play control and i think a general rule of thumb with control you are defensive until you can smell weakness and you almost can never really let your guard down because you're doing so much interaction at instant speed with your opponents. I don't recall saying that, but I'll uh, let you give me some props for it. You didn't say it quite as elegantly, but I was able to formulate a better structure for the thought as I've been thinking about it all day. (laughs) I tap out, I lose. Shane mad. Shane mad. (laughs) Shane very mad. So I think if that's the goal of the deck is to respond the best way to what your opponents are doing, I think there's basically the way that we think about this discussion or we're going to engage in this discussion about blue-white control is I think there's basically three lenses that you can use to look at the phases of the game that you're working in right there, which is this is maybe a rubric that'll help you make decisions or help you figure out where you are or what the cards in control are really for. And so the first one is, and so the first goal of blue-white control is to survive the early game. The second one is to generate a huge amount of card advantage and bury your your opponent in the, the extra optionality you have from that card advantage. The third one is to stick a resilient threat and ride that to victory with counterspell backup. The fourth step is profit, of course. 
And a lot of the cards, in my opinion, overlap with these steps. You know, sometimes your card advantage, sometimes your card advantage engines are also your threats. Yeah, the best cards in blue eye control do perform multiple duty across these different phases of the game. <laughs> you said duty. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so the first goal of blue eye control is to survive the early game, and the reason is that when you're a control deck, mana is really important to you. Your spells are really powerful, but they also tend to be kind of expensive. They tend to cost more. Your curve is not generally super, super low, or at least the cards that are low in the curve are not as impactful as others sometimes. You know, in control decks, you want to be able to play a land every turn. So you can be able to play big, powerful cards later in the game, or you can play multiple medium, powerful cards on a single turn later on. Since you only can play one land a turn, you have to get there eventually. You have to have ways to survive the early game and set up the mid game. So there's several different types of cards in blue eye control that help you do that. Yeah, so this is kind of the stuff that I, you know, as a newer player, I was looking for these cheaper interactive spells early on just to do like what you said. Like I can't just have a hand of like cryptic commands and to five mana to fairy. So I'm looking for <laughs> things like like Path to Exile, which is like, you know, the classic just a single white mana, exiles target creature, they get a some land ramp out of it. Logic knot, which was it's interesting to me. I want to talk a little bit about logic knot. Although if we go down this road, we're going to have a three-hour episode. Right. Logic Knot was not played for a long while, which kind of blows my mind. Um, it's it's blue, blue, X, and X is delve. And so, or also just lands you have on the battlefield as well, right? So you can just basically, unless your opponent pays X, you counter the target spell. So it's kind of like counterspell in many situations. And then there's things like Spell Snare, the classic single blue mana, counters a two CMC spell. That's pretty awesome on the draw, where you drop the single blue mana, and then they try to play their two mana spell, and you snare it. Detention Sphere is some nice, also somewhat early interaction. It's three mana. It removes a permanent on the other side of the battlefield, non-land permanent on the other side of the battlefield. I loved Detention Sphere when I played with it. It was only the one of, and I had one on my sideboard as well, but I loved it. I never had it removed, and I, I got lucky. You know, that's how it goes. But every time I played it, I then just came back to win the game, and it felt so powerful. I, we talked about it before. I don't think there's currently a lot of enchantment hate in Modern. No. You know what's interesting is uh, in the mirror, the opponent Detention Sphered my Teferi 3, which also Detention Sphered their Teferi 3. So <laughs> I understand how that card works. Whoops. One of the important rules about Detention Sphere that wasn't mentioned is that when you target a card to exile with it, it exiles all other cards with the same name. So it's both early interaction and a great way to potentially line up two or three for ones. Yes. A bunch of tokens, you know, if you're dealing with Empty the Warrens or a young Pyromancer. Yeah, it's... it's amazing that there's a card that scales from I'm going to get rid of one creature to I'm going to get rid of multiple creatures to I'm going to get rid of multiple planeswalkers accidentally on both sides of the field. Um, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I mean, another card that's in here is Dovin's Veto, which is a, a, a new card, of course, from War of the Spark that's really been getting a lot of play and I think is really key to where this deck is starting to evolve. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dovin's Veto was really impressive. And Shane's not the only person who had to deal with mirror matches. I fail. So I did two leagues and then a bunch of games in the practice rooms. And I played at least one mirror match in both leagues and no shortage of them in the practice rooms as well. And so many games were decided based on who had the Dovin's Vetoes or how many of them. 
right? I likewise did two leagues and I played the mirror match twice and uh, Esper Control once. And it came through heavy in there. And whereas most impressed, no joke, was combo. I played Ad Nauseam and Dovin's Veto was the truth versus that deck. Yeah. As my opponent had a spell pierce to try to protect their combo and nope, you can still play it, but it doesn't work. Or like yeah. a pact of negation or something. Exactly. It just it, it was very cool to know that I was going to ad nauseum. No, it's not happening and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. People are still getting used to this, the fact that this card exists, because there's plenty of people who just run it out like I have counterspell backup. No. Nope. Yeah. yeah. I, I had a number of people who just sort of shatter paused when I <laughs> when I did it, where you're like, okay, it's twenty it's been a minute that you've been sitting there now. Are you coming back? <laughs> Oh yeah, I played I played two mirror matches just in my single five game league. And <laughs> Did yeah, we play like, each other. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, and and the Dovin's veto definitely always felt like the one of the mirror breakers for sure. So cheap interaction is really important. There's a few other cards that actually help kind of grease the skids at the beginning of the game here for blue white control, and that's cantrips or filtering cards. So blue white is always known for playing some combination of opt opt serum visions to kind of help you fix draws and dig for answers that you're looking for. Even hieroglyph- hieroglyphic illumination appears here because it has um, cycling, which I think is good because it's kind of a dual player. We haven't seen it in a while, but Search for Ascanta used to fill this role as well. Yes. What happened to that card? So we're going to get to that in a little bit. A couple of creatures provide some early blocking. So Wall of Omens is, is in the current build of this as a two of, which is super interesting because it means that there's a recognition that there's a lot of aggro decks I out there. I love that card. Wall of Omens, pretty good to help you block maybe one creature in Dredge or you know, humans burn do. creatures. Help, it, help me beat humans. Humans, yeah, all kinds of stuff. So it, it's not going to last forever. And decks that go wide or do really broken stuff, it's more of a speed bump. But it is a speed bump that draws you a card. And that's important. And then the last thing that provides kind of survive the early game kind of momentum, and this is a card that definitely crosses over uh, between the early and mid game are wrath effects and life game of life gain effects, which really kind of help you both pile up card advantage and also set your opponent back very far in the plan that they were trying to do if they're if they are an aggressive or assertive deck. Yeah, wrath is like the the number one card that I like playing in control decks i love sweeping a board and i really i I really love sweeping sweeping a board twice in quick succession where it's like you wrath them and they're like well i've got to rebuild and you're like well i'm gonna wrath you again yeah and we often see a little bit of life gain because there's so much vulnerability in the early game for control decks i think there's a lot of times when you're letting creatures just swing into you if you can't find a removal spell and having some way to bring the balance back in your favor over the course of the game is important. So examples of that that we've seen are timely reinforcements. Blessed Alliance will sometimes see play. Absorb was pretty popular for a little bit, sometimes as a one or two of in blue-white decks after it entered modern. In my opinion, I almost feel like Wall of Omens is kind of like a life gain spell because when it serves as a blocker, it's life that you would have lost anyway. Yeah, I know some people have run Azorb in the sideboard, and I feel like that's a card that we'd probably take out for Dovin's Veto if you thought that'd be better. But if you're in a matchup where you're worried about burn or something and a counterspell that can't be countered is not as good as one that gains you three life. Yep, totally true. So that's the first phase. Survive, interact cheaply, <laughs> and try to move into the, the next the next area where Blue-White really kind of defines its, its difference from other decks is the next phase that we talked about is generating huge amounts of card advantage 
So look, card advantage is a fundamental concept of Magic the Gathering, right? Like we talked about earlier, I, in my opinion, it's probably one of the first things that many new players understand as one of their first level ups. Stan is shaking his head. No, I still barely understand what it means. Really? K-Command seems good, but I don't know why. Well, I'm here to talk <laughs> about it with you. Anybody else have any? Uh, you had a comment that I think is really interesting, that it's good in Magic and other games beyond that. Oh, yeah. And I think that's something that's honestly made me better at board games. Oh, yeah. Is if there are cards that let me draw more cards in the board game, I play those. So all of a sudden, everyone has two cards, and I have seven. And it's like, Zach, what's going on? Why are you so good? <laughs> oh, I'm not very good. I just decided to draw cards early game, and that's what's going on right now. Card advantage is the truth. 100%. That's why so many engines and board games revolve around getting cards in your hand, if it's a right. card-based game, game in some way, or just getting resources in your hand. Like, you know, if it's a worker placement game, you very quickly want to get more workers like uh, agricola is a classic where agricola uh agricola where everyone <laughs> everyone who knows how to play the game at all they they rush to grow their family which then gives them more workers which then which then lets them have more advantage in future future rounds of the game i think the quick thing i'd say about card advantage is that it's sort of adjacent to this entire idea in gaming and lots of other kind of recreational activities around the idea of value Okay, and so the idea of trying to get out more than you put into a certain decision in any game, whether that is Magic the Gathering, whether that is, um, you know, certain aspects of poker, whether that's something like the Moneyball theory of, of how to put together a baseball roster, I think they all stem from a similar concept, which is essentially how do I make sure that I am getting a good return on the investment that I put into that the resources I have in a game? And card advantage is sort of the easiest one to unlock. And from there you can kind of do all kinds of additional stuff. Yeah. I'll never forget when Jonah Hill taught me all about card advantage. (laughs) (laughs) I am so waiting for the Jonah Hill, uh, JGL starring story of the first pro tour. It's going to be incredible. (laughs) Um, so, but what, what really is card advantage in the kind of magic gathering sense? I think let's, as far as it goes for us, let's just go to where it all began and take a look at the Brian Weissman post that I mentioned earlier. And I'm going to read a direct quote from what he wrote back in like 1995 here. Before he, you do, yes, we need to link to this website because this is some, I, I can't believe it's still up number one, but this layout is unreal. Oh, yes. So here, so here's the, the, the link. So the dojo, in case anybody here doesn't know, was sort of the first Magic the Gathering kind of great website where you could go for strategy content, you could read articles from some of the best players. It was really amazing. And uh, the place where it lives right now, from what it looks like to me, is www.classicdojo.org. And then this this article... looks like my youth. Yes. This article is slash history slash thedeck2.html. We will link to this. But it looks like a website from 1996. It's an angel fire build if I've ever seen one. This website looks like what I think of whenever I hear Netscape Navigator. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So what's the quote? So Brian. So Brian's quote was based... Here's what it says. I argue incessantly with people on the net that despite... I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It sounds like Shane. <laughs> that despite their experience, speed is not what wins the game of magic. That is a pure time-tested fact. What wins the game is simply more options and more cards. 
since under normal circumstances, the most important thing you do every turn is draw another card. Every time that balance is offset, you gain the equivalent of one turn advantage over your opponent. For this reason, Ancestral Recall, in most circumstances, is three times as powerful as Time Walk. The former gives you three more cards, the latter only one. That's a pretty extreme example. Yes. I mean, I love <laughs> the idea of us being like, hey, we need to talk about the delta between Time Walk and Ancestral Recall. <laughs> but you know what? He was right. When I, w- when I was playing at this time, I actually had some of these cards. And when I first got the kind of Power 9 together and was like oh man time walk is so cool time walk is so cool it's really it's really nothing compared to the power of ancestral recall and it's it's totally true um so the the key things i would say that are in here are his contention that what wins games is more options and more cards and that the idea that the most important thing you do every turn is draw a card i think that is a really fundamental concept to to magic that sometimes people don't realize is so paramount now there are plenty of strategies where you trade drawing cards for uh other resources for speed essentially which he says doesn't win all the time there are plenty of decks that do that but the aggro thi- beats control right yeah exactly right there there are moments where it does i mean at, at this point in time this particular deck was so able to brian weissman's particular deck which was just known as the deck by the way which is you know, if that tells you anything about how important it was at that given time, was able to really just wreck aggro strategies because of all because of the way that it was constructed. Gotcha. We don't have this a lot power of healing f- salves. Yeah, exactly. No, it had <laughs> it had moat in it, is what it was, oh, yeah. and so moat would just stop anything that wasn't flying. It it's had a bunch like a of lightning bolts and now. a bunch of yeah, exactly swords of plowshares stuff like that. That's another thing for another time. But I think the uh, the thing that's n- worth noting here is that blue-white control is really, or control in general, card advantage is your primary game plan. It's not like other places where you're trying to kill them as fast as possible, where you're trying to pull off some kind of combination. What you want to do is grind your opponent out and try to have as many positive exchanges for cards where you win and you end up with more cards in your hand than they do so that you have more options going into the mid-game so that you can play out your your kill pieces and win from there yeah i i don't mean to jump ahead but i think cryptic command is the flagship example of how this works yeah when totally you choose agree. modes counter draw not only are you replacing your card your cryptic command with whatever you draw but you're also putting your opponent down a card because they haven't affected the board state or even if you like tap down their team and draw a card or something like that, you're effectively sort of you're denying them that turn of aggression, which you know also effectively buys you a card because they're not dead that turn. Yeah, absolutely. So each mode definitely generates some kind of card advantage on Cryptic Command. So I totally agree that it is it is the um, the kind of flagship card for this. I think it also draws a really important distinction between there's kind of two subtypes of card advantage and like like magic they have like most magic terms there's kind of some weird fuzziness in what these are actually called by most people but there's sort of literal card advantage where you're trading cards for cards and there's what people kind of call virtual card advantage which is that one card that you play from your hand negates your opponent's ability to play many cards from their hand in one way or another yeah zach actually spoke to that just like 30 seconds ago where he says you know if the aggressive deck beats you so quickly that you're not able to cast the cards out of your hand you had maybe two or three cards of virtual card advantage on them 
And what a great example also of Blood Moon, because if they can't cast the cards because they can't access that color mana, you've essentially gained that much cards in advantage. Yep. So let's kind of break down the way that Blue-White Control gets these two different types of card advantage, because they, they actually have answers or things that kind of put them ahead of both both cases. So the first one, interestingly, is a card that didn't exist 20 years ago, when 25 years ago when Brian Weissman was writing these articles, and that is Planeswalkers. Yeah, and as I've mentioned on this podcast before, this is my favorite card type, and my favorite part about running this deck for the leagues we did is that it runs four distinct Planeswalkers, which I did at one point in Scred, and it was like a crazy folly of me to do so. Yeah, (laughs) and this is the thing that's really new about this particular build of Blue-White that we're seeing right now is that it's taking advantage of new Planeswalkers from War of the Spark. Right, so there are five walkers that are, are played total, but usually four at a time. So the big four are Jason the Mind Sculptor, the three drop to fairy, the five drop to fairy, and Narset, and sometimes the new Sahili from more seeing play as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the past, we we also saw Gideon Jura. We saw various uh, Elspeth Sons Champion. We saw El- various Elspeths. You know, back in the days of Jessica Control, you had a Johnny Vengeant. So Planeswalkers have always been pretty key to modern control strategies. Yeah. Because they're so good at working on a controlled board where they can generate so much advantage over time. Yeah, I mean, t- keep in keep in mind, just to like clarify what you said there, Shane, basically a Planeswalker is a card that you expect to get multiple uses out of. And so it's literally card advantage. They're two for ones, they're three for ones, they're more than that sometimes depending on, on how they're constructed. But that's kind of how the Planeswalker card works as a design. Right. And another big thing is a lot of Planeswalkers' uh, loyalty abilities are based off spells, because it's supposed to be the Planeswalker casting them. So you're literally playing this card and getting spells cast from it in a way, but uncounterable spells even. So Zach, why don't you take us through some of the cool new toys that the deck has gotten, that, um, and we can talk a little bit about what we love and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to start with the new three fairy, little to fairy, little T, small boy, whatever you want to call him. Trunks. My son is also named Teferi. Excuse me, my son is also named Teferi. Were you talking to me? I thought I was the only Teferi. <laughs> so Teferi Time Reveler. We're all at Teferi next... license plates. <laughs> <laughs> so just make more Bort license plates. Teferi Time Reveler. For Teferi Time Reveler, decks are running anywhere from one to two copies main. And for me, I loved this card. Just slamming it on turn three a lot of the time felt very good. And either they responded or this card just ran away with the game. So the static ability, forcing your opponent to play at sorcery speed, is very good for control. They can't do anything on your turn, and you just get to go, okay, your turn now. Or if you want to slam a Planeswalker, you can. They can't do anything. Yeah. And yeah, it was just really nice. It also is really good to protect Celestial Colonnade, I found. This that is was amazing for me. a huge point, I think, with Teferi Time Raveler that I think that I think people don't realize it being as powerful as it is. One of the, the perils of playing with Celestial Colonnade, and we'll talk more about Colonnade in a little bit, is the fact that it's it's kind of a huge blow if it gets if it eats a fatal push. So right. being able to drop a three drop and then wait a couple of turns and then start attacking with your uh, colonnade is is huge. Yeah, um, there was a time where I had to ferry out and activate a colonnade against Jund, and I saw them tapping lands and making mana and like doing it over and over, and it's like oh they they don't realize they can't cast it, <laughs> like they think something's wrong with the game or something. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just really powerful. Teferi's plus one isn't as relevant in that it's not it's a little more fringy but it is causing 
the deck to change a little bit. So his plus one allows you to cast sorceries at instant speed. So the deck's made a few inclusions to get a real benefit out of this. So the card oust is one of the example of this, where it was a fringe played sorcery that is much better at instant speed. And a lot of decks are running a single certain visions, which you can then, you know, snap back with Snapcaster or something like that. Yeah, we also see timely reinforcements often in the side, sometimes in the main, but that's another card that synergizes well with Teferi's plus ability. Yeah, exactly. And then, so he comes down to four loyalty, and this minus is just bonkers. Like, there's been times I've played him, minused him, and don't care whether he lives or he dies, because the value I got was just that high. Where you can uh, bounce an artifact, enchantment, or creature to their hand, and then draw a card. That's absurd. The bounce by itself is already pretty good, and the card advantage actually provided is unreal. Yeah, it, it was unbelievable, even to do really tiny plays with that with that ability like hey i'm gonna play this guy on three i don't have anything else to do with it so i'm gonna bounce the wall of omens i played on two and replay wall of omens on four again so that i can draw basically three cards out of that sequence was was pretty wild and that's kind of a dumb way to use the card there's way more powerful ways to do it yeah i I feel like he really fits into the plan of the deck too where he's helping survive by bouncing stuff and making them unable to cast on your turn and providing card advantage and being he can't win the game by himself but he's for sure greasing the wheels along the way yeah i saw him pop up in jeskai sahili over the weekend in some tournament results and it made me realize how effective he is in serving the function that peak used to serve where because your opponents can't cast spells and instant speed and often interact with whatever your plan is, he kind of just keeps the coast clear whenever you need to do whatever it is you're doing. So one example we talked about is the relationship between Celestial Colonnade and Fatal Push, but there's so many other examples where the last thing you want is for your opponents to cast an instant on your turn. You know, that includes counter magic. That can include draw spells. That can include lightning bolts. I had decks straight up scoop to turn three to fairy that I fought through, uh, you know, either turn three to fairy or turn five to fairy that I fought th- getting out through a counter war th- with Dovin's veto. It's pretty, pretty good. It's not really a war if it's only two blows struck, right? That's yeah, true. So the next planeswalker that we want to talk about is another new addition from War of the Spark, and that is Narset Parter of Veils. I talked about this card a little bit last week in the Sleeve Believe Heave episode, but in case you didn't hear, What this card does is it has a static ability that prevents your opponent from drawing more than one card per turn. This ability is so annoying to face down in the mirror. Like even stuff like casting a Serum Visions, I'm like, oh, I didn't actually draw the card, poop. (laughs) Just stuff I shouldn't be casting because I forgot exactly what the spell did. Oh yeah, it, it, she. Um, there are a couple games where I played her, and like she's not really doing anything. Well, no, she's actually doing a lot. You just can't tell because your opponent's not casting cards anymore because they don't want to get burned into it. I even had a game where I was against. Uh, is it Phoenix? And they had a TT at two, and they just had to jam two Faithless Lootings in to flip it, and it was the right choice. I think they needed a seven eight, but yeah, go ahead and play two cards, discard four cards. Sounds good for Zach. Yeah, that's amazing. This is a great example of virtual card advantage. Yeah. Right? Like, just the static ability. Also, Teferi's static ability is kind of an example of, very much an example of virtual card advantage as well. But let's talk about her her minus two as well. Yeah, which is literal card advantage. Right. (laughs) Her minus two lets you look at the top four cards of your library, reveal a non-creature, non-land card put it in your hand and put the rest on the bottom of your library worth noting she comes down with five loyalty so you can activate this twice and then she still sticks around so 
let's talk about this for a second because that ability sounds really familiar, right? It it's sure search does. for Excanta, basically. Yeah. And it looks to me like that's the slot that this card replaced specifically. Sure. Because although it's a little less good at filtering your draws, that static ability yeah. seems so impactful in the format right now. Yeah, it really is. Like, I'm honestly thinking that this is going to climb as the meta calls for it in terms of number of, of cards in the main. We actually, yeah, we actually saw the winning list of the Modern Classic this weekend at the SEG Open. Um, it ran four. Narset Parter avails, maybe capitalizing on the power there, or maybe just running hot. But yeah, Narset is powerful. I wonder if that may have something to do with the expected meta share of Is It Phoenix, because that is a deck that really struggles to this card. Narset's one of those three drops that you can just cast it and then let it sit there with five loyalty, and then it takes at least two cards or at least a bolt and a swing from a creature to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. There are times where I would play it, and if they have two bolts, then go ahead and spend two bolts on this card. I'm fine with yeah. that. Yep. Card so, advantage. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And I I almost never played her and just went, well, we'll see. It's either I'm in the clear and I'm going to minus, and I'm going to find my board wipe, which we'll talk about shortly, or, hey, go ahead, attack her. I don't care. <laughs> Plus, because this deck does have Vendillion Click Main, if you're really, really lucky and get them to zero cards in hand... You hold priority on their draw step with a nar-, nar set on the board, cast Vendillion click, make him drop the card in the hand. They don't get a replacement. Ooh, spicy. Bada boo. No, she seems she seems really good, especially on just for three. Yeah, I feel bad that I, I read over this card and was kind of like, ah, seems okay. Yeah, you just don't think about how much how much people are drawing. Like even like, you know, like Tron is trying to cycle through with its uh with its chromatic effects. There's just all sorts of ways that people are trying to draw more cards that you don't think about. Yeah, yeah. I think the moral of the story here is that static abilities are pretty good on planeswalkers. Yeah. So let's talk about another one. Yeah. So this is one that's not played all the time. It's only in a few builds, anywhere from zero to two copies, and that is Sahili Sublime Artificer. So the static is different than the other two in that it's actually providing tokens. So what's whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you make a 1-1 servo. So I played against this in the mirror match, and I first thought I was going to lose to it, but it is pretty slow. It's not that fast of a clock just because you can't swing with all your tokens. Some have to stay back to protect her. And also with Wall of Omens, and like they don't always want to trade for a Snapcaster even. So I found it to be interesting, and the army built up, but it was complicated to see it in control. It made a lot of tokens and did some neat things, but it did not win the game for my opponent the way I thought it would. I had a similar experience, where I was playing against Is It Phoenix, and I believe they sided it in against me, which I thought was kind of odd, because of all of the Wraths that I'm running is just a great way to get rid of a board full of Thopter tokens. <laughs> the Wraths you took out, right, for the Is It Phoenix matchup? Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, I was pretty impressed with the amount of tokens she's able to produce. And that's another yeah, Planeswalker similar to Narset, where you can just cast it and let it sit there with five loyalty. And then your opponent has the responsibility of either dealing with it or sometimes you just get run over by a bunch of one ones. And those do add up over a while. I think it really, really shines in the mirror. I think um, I sort of got lucky with how I was able to respond to it. And she is slow once again, so you do have time to respond. But if I didn't rip a board wipe in the you know the one or two turn window I have to rip it, I would have been facing down nine servos, and that's the way it is. 
Her minus two isn't exactly relevant. You can minus two to make an artifact a copy of target creature you control. So the big play I saw was my opponent activated Colonnade and made a servo a copy of Colonnade, which is still cool and was very powerful, but it that's mid-range shenanigans, right? Like, that's nothing that's going to blow out the game or anything. Yeah, although copying a Snapcaster Mage is pretty good. Ooh. Yeah, so let's talk about... So that was a great, like discussion of the new new toys that we've gotten from war of the spark and and how these uh once again these three mana planeswalkers have kind of flown under the radar are are, are emerging so the two classic planeswalkers we've seen in blue white control basically since jace was unbanned and teferi entered the format are jace the mind sculptor and teferi hero of dominaria and they interact with the deck in different and interesting ways they can both be win conditions they can be control pieces that prevent your opponent from building a board state. Jace can fate seal the opponent so they don't have good draws. They can ultimate and win the game, plus the card advantage. Here's the only thing I would say here is that we all know how good these two cards are. <laughs> and this is one of those spots where I feel like we don't want to go over ground that's already been well-trodden by other people previously. Here's the only thing I would say as a tip from both of these cards is use fate seal more often. Oh my god, yes. yes. Then you oh, yeah. are. Oh yeah. I don't care if your opponent has six cards in hand. Sometimes Fate Seal is still the best thing you can do and just is what lets you start gaining control back in the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that's very easy to undervalue, but I've played games against control where my opponent keeps doing that. I'm like, oh, what an idiot. They should bounce Chandra. They should do this. And later after the game, after I've lost even, we'll talk about like, yeah, I put two Rebel Masters and a Blood Moon to the bottom. Like, oh, okay. Those all have been really good cards that would have won me the game. So I guess that was pretty smart of you, huh? I find myself in many times now that I've been playing this deck on and off for the whole year or so that Jace has been um, legal, just thinking more and more often you know i really should fate seal here i really should fate seal here brainstorm would be nice but i really should fate seal here instead and just kind of lock it down yeah for jay specifically fate seal was my default unless i was struggling and i would brainstorm if i was from behind and needed a specific card but otherwise regardless of how many cards are in my opponent's hand i would always fate seal them because it's a a, it's a piece of information because you know what's going to be in their hand, or B, it's buying you a turn by preventing them from doing something really important or impactful that could prevent you from winning. Right. I to talk a little bit about what your guys' experience was with playing with Teferi versus playing with Jace. And it's weird. I know Teferi does cost one mana more, but I did find Teferi's card advantage and power to be far more obvious to me than Jace. I mean, I'll come out and say it. I think Teferi's better. You can at me. You can tag me. You can tag my friends even. What? I disagree. You guys are well, wow. Okay. Really? Please what tag makes, Stan as well. So what what makes you what makes you like Jace more than Teferi? Fate Seal. Both Fate, Fate Seal, Seal and the ultimate wins you the game pretty much on the spot. Well, they can see a dollar sign, Shane. Yeah. I mean <laughs> Teferi is is very, very good and Teferi is easier to um to protect. In a lot of ways, because you can play him and then if, you know, if they have shields down and and you can untap two lands and leave up a little bit of interaction as a result, like he is easier to use. And so you often get a better return. It literally just draws a card. But I mean, first off, Fate Seal can put the game on pause for a put your opponent's game on pause for a really long time so that you can uh, do what you need to do. You know, we glossed over Jace's zero ability, but being able to cast Brainstorm every turn if you want to is totally insane, especially in a deck that has fetch lands. So if you can, you know, 
if you can brainstorm, pull up a couple of cards, leave a fetch land out, put the cards you don't want back, shuffle, and then the next turn brainstorm again when you have six cards in hand. It's it's really it's really powerful. It's just sometimes hard to protect. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I misused the brainstorm. Like I think I probably could have been like fetching away bad cards more than I was. Like when I used the brainstorm for me as like a, a newbie to the, that style of deck, it was very much like Okay, well, I'm just putting these cards back on top. I'm gonna redraw them again. That feels annoying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did you did you play with brainstorm back in the day? No, I've, no, I've never I've never cast a brainstorm in my life. Yeah, it takes some practice to be able to figure out like, hey, this is what I'm supposed to put back. This is what I don't want. This is how I can get rid of the cards I didn't want to not accidentally go Jace brainstorm to fairy plus one to draw the card you didn't want. It's tough. One more similarity they have is that they both serve as removal spells. Jace and Teferi, but Jace has four abilities. Teferi only has three. Yeah. I, I just can't I can't co-sign on Teferi being better. I, I think Teferi is an excellent card. It can also yeah. be a win con. I, I actually think it just wins the game a little slower than Jace does. It's not about well, uh, I mean, hold on. What did Dave say in the opening? It's magic's not about speed, it's about card advantage. Yeah. So. But at a certain point, you need to close out the game and control being a threat light <laughs> strategy, you need to know what your win conditions are as well. Jace definitely gives more card advantage than Teferi, even though Teferi literally just draws a card. No, that's all very fair. Wow. I, I was not expecting a lively debate about Jace versus Teferi, but that grew some hair on my chest. That was great. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the hair, I mean, it's good hair. All right, so interesting that we spent so much time talking about Planeswalkers as sort of the nexus of of uh, the the plan for blue-white control and modern, but I think that's just kind of where we're at right now. So the other ways that, that blue-white can gain card advantage are, I think, a little bit more obvious and a little bit more traditional. So one is Wraths, right? Because Wraths literally is one card that kills three or four targets from from your opponents. The problem with, with a Wrath, there's a couple of little problems with it. One is they generally all cost four so you you kind of need a little bit of time to get to that point. The other thing is opponents, if they once they realize what deck they're playing against, they're going to start slow rolling their threats. And so there are definitely games where you are lucky to have somebody play out two threats into a blue-white control board, let alone three, four, or five, where you get some really massive card advantages as a result. But they're super important cards. I didn't have the same experience, man. What I do you mean? I felt like people played into my wraths left and right. Humans wow, has no a, choice. Humans has to play a bunch of creatures. Same with elves. You know what I mean? Like Dave, I agree with you that uh, in theory that's the correct thing, but I agree opponents would dump their hands into me, and sometimes they would get rewarded. Like I had a merfolk player who I, I learned uh, the guy I played against is actually a very good merfolk player who competitive 5 O's all the time, so that was a pretty brutal loss for me. Oh. Shout out Nikachu. But the... He just dumped his hand into my board and I just said, have it, have it. And yeah. I did not have it. And he won next turn. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's, a, a, that's we'll talk on that later, but I think that's a legitimate strategy as well, where it's either you have this board wipe or I'm going to win. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair. I just think there are a lot of situations where in, in the leagues that I did for this round or many times in the past where someone gets hip to it and they know my game plan is I need to out card advantage you or try to out card advantage you or not get totally crushed and so i'm just not going to play into wrath and it's viable uh another card that's huge in in this is snapcaster mage of whoop, course whoop. 
That's and, me. Um, At the beginning of the episode, when I gave you all nicknames, I secretly hoped you'd ask me what my nickname was so I could say <laughs> Snapcaster Mage. I'm, I'm sorry. Are most things you do an attempt to get us to ask you about yourself? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that in the future, Zach. Snapcaster I Stan. I, <laughs> I stand Snapcaster Mage. We share the first, same first initial. You do. <laughs> so, of course, that card is great. It lets you get stuff back. It, the 2-1 is very relevant, yada, yada, yada. We've talked about Snapcaster Mage in the past on this podcast. If you don't believe that Snapcaster Mage is card advantage, um, see me after class. Yeah, Snapcaster is the truth. He's super fun. Yeah. And then, of course, there's actual card draw in these in these decks, and that comes in the form of cards that tack on draw a card, like a cantrip or something like that, like Cryptic Command in particular I'm talking about here because... It has so many modes and the ability to add a uh, draw card onto that. Hieroglyphic Illumination goes on there. Search for Iskanta, if people are playing that instead of Narset, though potentially it looks like maybe Narset might just outmode Search for Iskanta at this point in time, which is sad because I love my search. That's wild. And then, you know, one other spoiler that came out today that goes in this bucket is Factor Fiction, which we could talk about another time, but I'm just saying, I think it fits in here. Sure. Only because it's instant speed. Yeah. I don't think we'd be talking about factor fiction if it was a sorcery. Ain't nobody be talking about factor fiction if it was a sorcery. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't have been talking about it 20 years ago if it was a sorcery. But I want to mention the reason why hieroglyphic illumination and cards like factor fiction are so notable in a control style deck is because blue-white especially is often playing draw go. Draw a card, pass a turn. And what you often want to do is hold up cards like Cryptic Command or Logic Knot or Removal Spells so that you can interact with your opponent on their turn. But you also want to have something to do in case that they don't in case they don't cast any spells. Right. And that's where cards like yeah. Hieroglyphic Illumination really shine because yeah. your opponent is basically damned if they do, damned if they don't. Exactly. Do you really think that Search for Ascanta is not worth playing anymore? Because... You just bury your opponent in that card advantage by not... If you don't have to act on their turn, like Stan said, then you can just activate search at the end of the turn, and then you just dig through your deck for stuff you need. So you have to flip it to be able to do that, which is pretty big. And also, you it's cool to do it during their end step, but it is costing you four lands to do it. And that's not, not an issue. Like there's, there's some times where you won't be able to do that and where you can minus... Uh, Narset if you wanted to. And I know that's not a direct comparison, but the mana sink, while useful, it still does require mana. I don't think we've seen the last of Search for Ascanta. I think it may be a little bit more useful in decks that run miracles. So if you need to get to your miracle as early as possible, that's one of the hard things with those cards in particular. They were so unpredictable. But right now, because we aren't beholden to the random number generator that is whether or not we draw the miracle at the right time... Having something like Narset, which has a both relevant static ability and a way to draw you cards, I think is good enough. I got to say, I'm buying what Stan's saying here. I think guaranteed two activations for no mana is worth a lot more than Search itself, unfortunately. Yeah, plus the static. Yeah. So it's just just the combination of effects. It's a little bit more flexible, and flexibility wins modern games a lot of times. Yeah. Okay. So the last source of card advantage for this blue-eye control deck is um, what I think of as broadly kind of the category of powerful sideboard cards. So since this deck is white, it gets to Mm -hmm. tap into that, you know, incredible suite of white hate enchantments and other things like that out of the sideboard. And this is really kind of the blood moons of this deck, right? So if we're going to think about a card that gives virtual card advantage and maybe invalidates a large portion of our opponent's decks, 
this is what we're talking about. We're talking about rest in peace, stony silence, all those kind of silver bullets that help you just kind of take out someone's strategy before they even have a chance to play it. Yeah, I'd put timely reinforcements into this category. If you have a couple of those in your sideboard, it just helps so much against aggressive decks. Your suite of angels, whomever they may be. Yeah, they help with this Shut too. Shut up, Lyra Hold me down since day one. <laughs> Important, uh, worth mentioning, and you know, most people I don't think think of sideboard hate as card advantage, but but here it is. Yeah, I mean, a single a single timely can be it's a two for one for two burn spells. Yeah. So last card I want to talk about in this space, we should talk a little bit about the fact that blue white is running a surgical extraction hmm. main now and about have to? what that is and what that means, even if we do it for a, a moment. So I loved it precisely once when I was able to have an opponent block my colonnade with a Phoenix and then I surgical the Phoenix, but that felt more like a misplay they got punished for than anything that I did correctly. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think it falls into the category of powerful sideboard cards because surgical gives you the chance to run a sideboard hate plan against a deck that could be hurt again against it, main deck. And then maybe you sideboard those out and replace them with other things if it doesn't make more doesn't make sense later. But it does give you that flexibility to kind of get virtual card advantage in the form of if I take this piece of your strategy away, then I invalidate all these other cards in your deck. Yeah, I, I found it really good with Field of Ruin in combination. Mm-hmm. I think that creature lands are something this deck can struggle against because it also uses them. So yeah. um, I don't know if it was right, and I won, but I don't know if it was because of this. But I um, did destroy some creature lands in Jund and then uh, totally exile them with Surgical Extraction. And it felt good to me, but who knows? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I think the big play with Surgical and Field of Ruin is against Tron. Absolutely. Generally is what people expect. And um, for all the cards that we've talked about in in this deck so far, we don't even have a note anywhere to talk about Field of Ruin and what a pivotal card that's been for mm. Blue White Control because it allows them to um, to attack. Uh, it allows you to attack a mana base that has problematic or broken cards in it. So I'm just gonna set that aside and acknowledge it, its existence, and then I think we can move on from there. <laughs> Surgical exists. It's kind of the necessary evil of modern right now. Every time I think that the days the days of Surgical have passed. Phoenix just wins another tournament or Dredge makes it into the top eight. Yeah. Not to mention it has other utility. You know, you can use it against combo strategies. You can use it against Tron in conjunction with your field of ruin. It has utility, but it's, I actually felt like it was one of the weakest cards in the, in the 60 or in the 75. Yeah, I agree. It was brutal for me, the, the leagues that I played this time and a uh, small sample size, but it, it definitely, every time I drew it, I was like, I have literally no reason to play surgical extraction right now. So the last phase of how uh, Blue White Control executes their game plan is to bring a resilient threat into play and ride that to victory once the coast is clear. Right. So you've survived, you've drawn a bunch of cards, you've stabilized, and now it's time to land your game-breaking threat. So the classic one for this is Celestial Colonnade, as we mentioned. It's very hard to remove as it is only a creature for a small window of time, and it has Vigilance as well, which is just every time I... Got to attack with that card. Went, Why isn't it tapping? Is magic? Oh, no, it has vigilance. Okay. It just, mm-hmm. it's so good. Other classic win cons for this are Lear Dawnbringer, which we talked about, Vendillion Click, Cataclysmic Gear Hulk, and sometimes Restoration Angels or other good powerful angels, Baneslayer, for example. The Planeswalkers we mentioned count here too, uh, but only really, I'd say, Jason to Fairy for that, as they have ultimates that can win the game. Yeah, and sometimes mm-hmm. you can just win off Snapcaster Beats. I've lost Snapcaster Beats, so you sure can. 
Yeah, I mean, decks in Modern play fast and loose with their life total, and so if you're playing against Grixis Death Shadow or something and you manage to grind them down and they're at eight, Snapcaster can get you there. Yeah, it is pretty awesome to get to the point where you have a handful of counter spells and you just activate your Celestial Colonnade. You know, they uh, the, the Colonnade you know swings in. They might try to rem- have a Fatal Push or a Path to Exile. You counter it. They don't have much left. Colonnade does cost a lot to activate, so keeping enough mana up to have a couple counter spells can be really challenging. So you still can get blown out like dave said earlier like if your colonnade eats a removal spell that you can't get around or they cast two removal spells in one turn that can be a downer yeah and learning to hold back my colonnades until later into the game was a big level up moment for me because there was several times where i was blown out because i got greedy and activated my colonnade too early and i didn't have any way to interact with them on their turn or how to protect my colonnade and then i just ran out of options to win the game and they eventually got there yeah, I found Colonnade to be the most difficult card to use in the deck. And I luckily never lost to it, but there are a couple of times where I gave my opponent an extra turn because I misplayed with it or held it back when I did not need to. And it's just learning little things like that that make this deck, and sort of the depth of that decision and how many trees there are that make this deck as powerful as it is. But it's awesome. And it's nice and affordable right now because it got reprinted in Ultimate Masters. Oh, remember when it was like $60? <laughs> I got one in my binder for any dive down listeners that want to trade. Yeah. yeah. I had to sell some Bitcoin to buy mine. Not a joke. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. So that's that's the plan of how how blue we think is a good way to think about how blue white control should work. Survive the early, draw a bunch of cards, stick a resilient threat and ride it to victory. So now that we've talked about all the ways the control beats you, and trust me, it will beat you more times than you'd prefer. It is still a very beatable deck, even though sometimes it feels miserable to play against, like they have all the answers. Occasionally, you can beat them, and we're going to tell you how. And one of my favorite ways to beat them, and one of the ways that I found to be successful against Control in my experience as a modern player, is to just outnumber their answers with more threats. I think go-wide decks can sometimes do it if they don't find a Wrath in time. Counterspells are weak to Aethervile decks, but Spell Queller is a very useful tool since it can exile a spell that would otherwise be uncounterable, specifically Supreme Verdict or even Dovin's Veto. Yeah, or even sometimes Spell Queller, even just off of a negate or another two-mana counter spell, you know, just because they play something, try to try to counter your card, and then you just pick it up, and so they, lo- they lose that card, and then they're out of answers for your Spell Queller. It can really vault you ahead because it's a threat and a counter as well. And what, what's funny is I saw in one of my blue-white mirrors they actually uh, seem to have a spell queller or brought one in from the side against me. That happened to me too. What a cool card. Very cool. I think going fast in general is a good practice against control. If you can win by turn four, essentially before they can set up cryptic command mana, that's a pretty good place to be. When I was running mono red Phoenix, I always thought that was a fairly decent matchup against blue white decks like infect or other explosive strategies. Even burn can get there fast enough. Yeah, I struggled mightily against burn decks uh, during the the three leagues that I did with control in the last few days. And uh, I don't know why, because I usually feel pretty good in that matchup, but it felt unreachable this time with uh, the particular uh, way this one was constructed. Stan, going just looping back a little bit, kind of combining fast and outnumbering, I think that recursive threats, and we see a lot of those lately in decks like, uh, you know, Is It Phoenix and 
Dredge. Um, dredge. Yeah, so just having threats that continue to come back. So just like against a mid-range deck with a pile full of removal, like you can you can overload the suite of removal spells and uh, sweepers and wraths that the control player will be playing. When I alluded to earlier about Celestial Colonnade being a hard card to play with, it's because it can make you very vulnerable when you tap out. And I think control, especially blue-white, will sometimes lower its shields by tapping out for a Jace or tapping out for a Crypto Command or a Celestial Colonnade. So if you're running a deck that can punish or basically win really quickly when your control opponent has tapped out, that's also a viable strategy to beat the deck. I used to play against control all the time when I was on Scred, and I always viewed these moments as, all right, my window is here, and you have to think about every line you have, because you're not going to get many of these situations, and you don't always have to act right away, and there's sometimes where you can't, but when they do that, when they tap out for their thing and they go, your turn, you have to consider immediately, all right, how, what can I do right now to try to turn the tables a little bit? Do you guys think that any decent control player is going to tap out and give you a window that they don't think they can respond to. Sometimes they have to. Yeah. Well, sometimes when, when they, they have, have to. to. Give me an example of that. When you have to crypt a command something. Yeah. When you need to cast a Jace because your opponent has creatures out and you don't have any removal in your hand. Yeah, I mean it's okay, it's okay. it's all those four drops in particular. Cryptic command, I think, is a big one. Where if you can, if you have cheap spells and you can bait them into casting one of their expensive one of their cryptics, and yeah. then you have open it, the coast is clear to do whatever you want with the rest of your mana that turn. That that's pretty big, right? Yeah. So if you have like if you have a powerful three or four mana spell, they're like, well, I have to counter this. Then you untap and then cast another four or a five mana spell. It's even more powerful. Yeah, or you go. Um, you're in Vizier combo and you're playing against control and you cast Vizier and they have to cryptic command it. And then you still have two mana open so that you can, uh, you know, Neoform or something into the other piece of the combo or cast a redundant piece of the combo or something like that. Sure. Yeah. If this deck was a vehicle from Star Wars, it would be the Death Star since it's both super powerful, but sometimes you can just slide in and shoot your force missiles right into that hole that makes everything explode and make a big sound in space. Have you seen Star Wars? <laughs> I've been bullseyeing Womp Rat since I was 11. Oh, that that's going to get me some emails. I did not get the quote right. I gotta go to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Sand, it's coarse and rough. Not like you. You're soft and smooth. <laughs> Oh God! All right, move along. All right, so I love you, Queen Amidala. No, no, it's no, it's move along, move along. <laughs> These aren't the grains you're looking for. I think control can also sometimes be vulnerable to decks that win without attacking. So even though it does have its suite of counter magic, it has a lot of creature removal as well. Be it the Wraths, be it Path to Exile, be it Oust or Condemn. So combo decks such as Storm or Ad Nauseum. Even Tron or Control Mirrors can sometimes outvalue the Control deck because either the Control deck will tap out or they won't have the proper interaction to win with a non-creature strategy. And lastly, I think shutting off their resources is always a good plan. Pithing Needle effects that can shut off their Planeswalkers, Blood Moon that can shut down their lands or their colonnades can often buy you the time you need to execute your plan if you're being proactive. In the business, this is known as the Colhan approach, for what it's worth. Every time we talk about beating a deck, we say play Blood Moon. <laughs> yeah, you need to play Blood Moon. You need to play Blood Moon fast and often. What do you guys think about Choke? Well, how about I do you one better? How about Boil? <laughs> Turn that up to 100 degrees Celsius, my good boy. 
I mean, you know, the the few existing uh, BGX mid-range decks out there seem to sometimes or frequently run a choke in the side. I think that could do some work against this deck. Yeah, no, I think so too. I think if you have choke, you bring it in. It's surprising how brutal, because like they run the hollowed fountains and the number varies, but that's an island, right? Yeah, you still got to slip a four mana spell through their defenses, though. So. Oh, but I can and I or, will. No, it's choke three. Choke's three. Choke's, choke's three. three. You're talking about boil now, baby. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what what Zach said, if you have choke, you bring it in, but it's such a liability to have in your 75, unless you know Agreed. that you're dealing with a lot of blue players in your local meta. Yep. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. And, and there are for me, so I'm rewarded, but I wouldn't just jam boil or choke into your sideboard. Great. So guys, it's good to listen to you uh, talk for an hour and 15 minutes on this deck because you are far more expert at it than I. Um, this is really the first time that I have played Control for you know a sequential games at all. And so I have some, some questions for you all that I'd just like to hear your reactions to start some conversation here. And first one is, if you have the choice, do you think you play or want to take the draw? So we played, the four of us, very similar lists. And I thought this list actually wanted to be on the play more often than previous lists of blue-white control. The characteristics of this list, Dan, are, you know, we have the suite of, like, what, six or seven Planeswalkers. Basically five Path to Exile effects. So all, all of the decks ran four Path to Exile plus an oust or two ousts. Yeah. Oost. Five cantrips. They all ran... Four four ops plus a serum visions, yeah, um, and then three wraths essentially, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, a card draw spell, four snapcaster mages, a couple of wall of omens, and then kind of flavor to taste from there. Yeah, so it's really kind of the more planeswalker heavy. There's no search for his Kanta. There's fewer cryptics than I'm used to seeing in these kind of lists. There's maybe one or two fewer wraths than I'm used to seeing in these lists. But yeah, so it's really trying to rely on those static effects from the Planeswalkers and the powerful pluses and minuses that they have. So the reason why I I think that this list is more suited to be on the play is because of Wall of Omens, Dovin's Veto, and just the fact that you have cards like Opt and Serum Visions. I think you have more to do in those early turns, and, and Logic Not fits into that bucket as well. You have so much more to do with two mana in your early turns that I think getting ahead on the board state is a little bit better than you know the single card advantage you start with by being on the draw you described this as draw go and i wondered if i was playing it wrong but i found that i wasn't draw going as much as i thought i'd be i was you know draw wall of omens draw slam this walker draw do this etc so i feel like the deck it's not a fast deck and i'm not saying it is but it's gotten faster than it was yeah I think that modern is just sort of set up that it's so fast that if you have the opportunity to play, you just have to do it. And all the decks have to be able to play, even the decks that are slow, like control. And so I I always played too. Well, what just popped into my head is sort of working off of our humans discussion a couple weeks ago, is that is a proactively disruptive deck, right? You know, what's funny here is that we're seeing these sort of control seeming planeswalkers but their statics and sometimes their their abilities do offer proactive disruption as well is in it a control proactive shell. Dis- disruption or is it reactive disruption no well, if, if you're if you're playing a, a, a narset three out there and then knowing that that's going to disrupt their ability to draw a couple cards like they wanted to then that's you know that's essentially the same thing as playing a, a meddling mage that says you know you can't cast draw spells yeah oh, that's interesting Except that meddling mage swings for two. 
Narset three is my favorite Ramstein album. Well, that, when I didn't say aggressive. I said proactive. Fair. Okay. Okay. I think that's an important distinction I needed to hear. Yeah. One thing that I thought was weird too was there were so many more ops over Serum Visions, and I kind of assumed that Serum Visions was so powerful at setting up your future draws that you would want to run more Serum Visions and ops. Sorcery speed's a bad feeling, and only the Teferi's really there to make it any better, and you really want to be able to interact if you have to. And I, I don't want to have to choose at the end. I want both options. So I think one of the reasons why this deck wants to run Opt over Serum Visions, and I'll be extra curious to hear what Dave thinks, is because you don't get to cast a lot of turn one Serum Visions in a deck full of Celestial Colonnades. And that's where Serum Visions really shines in my experience casting that card. Because not only does it replace itself, but it's setting up your next couple turns. But when you're running a tap land, essentially a gate as your turn one land... <laughs> Serum Vision starts to get a little awkward when you'd rather hold up two mana to cast one of your Logic Knots, a Dovin's Veto, etc. thereafter. Not to mention what I mentioned earlier in the episode about holding up an answer and then having a draw spell such as Op to cast when your opponent doesn't do anything. So I totally agree with, with what you're saying. It, it didn't stop this deck from running Serum Visions over Op six months ago before yeah. before the Miracles package. So, you know, when we had Blue Eye Control and we Blue Eye Control Miracles, the Blue Eye Control deck seemed to be perfectly happy to run Serum Visions for years, basically, yeah. over over Op. Not years, I guess, because Op just got printed in Ixalan. But, yeah. you know, I, I was having a hard time figuring out that out when I was playing this deck. There were tons of times where I was just like, man, I really wish that I had Serum Visions here to dig a little bit deeper so that I could do but more to set up my my future turns because I had plenty of times where I felt like op just did nothing in this deck. Wow. And the only reason I feel like they're, it's probably running it is because this deck is also unusually for blue white control running for snapcaster mages. And so what we're trying to do is guarantee that we can throw down a snapcaster mage at the end of our opponent's turn and flash something back, even if there's no target for it. Now I, I don't know for sure if that's true, but that was the, what what I thought about it when I was playing it. Um, I'm just going to continue down the kind of like this. I don't get this build quite as much as I used to. Quite as much as the last time I looked at Blue Eye Control when I also didn't play it. No, I mean, no, I, I felt like I understood it, though, right? There was a yeah. lot more four ofs. There was a yeah. lot more like it's like I get I get the power of Cryptic Command, but there's only like a couple of cryptics now. Yeah. So I, I really miss Cryptic Command. I felt like I didn't draw it enough. I, I'm curious to know what Stan thinks about it. Well, if y'all recall, I recommended a list to all three of you, and I right. said specifically, take out the second three fairy and put in a third cryptic command. And that may have something to do with my value of those two cards, but personally, I think being able to cast cryptic command is what makes blue-white control so powerful and consistent and such a reliable tool for card advantage that I prefer three. I prefer the third cryptic to the second Teferi. I just feel like I would rather get rid of Oust, honestly. Yeah, I played right? with Oust oh so often. God, I was just like, this is not that good. I did, yeah, I, no, I, I disagree. Hate, I hated Oust. Oh, I'm with Zach. It. Oust is the bomb. Oust is great because it has Field of Ruin. Because you put the card into their deck and then you shuffle it away. And then you shuffle it away. Then you shuffle it away. And, it is mm, and oh all they God, gain is three life. Up. And who cares about three life? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. It's just more that I actually felt like I didn't need a fifth Path to Exile. Mm. So it was kind of like, and that's what Oust yeah. is. Like, Oust is not as good as Path to Exile, right? Well, so, um, they don't get a land. But it's also a sorcery instead of an instant. Well, okay. Well, 
Yeah, that's my big issue with it too. I'm just saying, like, it felt awkward to me, and I I don't totally understand why all of a sudden everybody's like, we need a fifth path to exile. Now, if the meta had been a little bit different from from what it is right now, that's what I'm trying to kind of suss my way through. Is that you know, against Dredge, having another path to exile is not very good, real realistically. But in in where we are right now, maybe where we're we have um. You know, we have Tron dropping worm coil engines against us or big threats, then having another path to exile is very good. And so that's that's the one piece of the the construction of this list that everybody seems to love right now that I've been having a hard time figuring out why we're all agreed. I found it very good versus humans. They got out three meddling mages named Path to Exile, Wrath of God, and Supreme Verdict. Okay. And guess what gets rid of that is our yes. say of judgment. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can buy that. <laughs> well, also that, but they didn't hedge the bets correctly, and they got oosted. Yeah, I mean that—that that is a great point. Like they can humans is around. There's a ton of it right now, and they can only name so many cards with meddling mage. I I want to talk about the mirror guys, but I feel like it'll take a ten minute conversation. Let's do it. Take out your board wipes, bring in your big angels, and you pray. No, but it's more. It's really about your play. It's rather your your sequencing that's way more important, and like when you blink and when you try to make them blink, it's it's really challenging. Yeah, Shane, no, you make an interesting point, man, because the control mirror is like a game of chess. It's so slow. It's, in my opinion, not fun. It's the least fun matchup for me with blue-white control because I think there's some really impactful mirror breakers, specifically Three Fairy and Dovin's Veto, and I found that whoever gets the first one of either of those cards usually wins. And in fact, my blue-white matches were the ones where I scooped the soonest just because once they have to ferry on the board, it became so hard yeah. to deal with it. So based on like strategy I've read about you know control mirrors and stuff like that, my general understanding is that you want to just conserve resources and make land drops until you can try to double spell them or win a counter war and just get something through the shields that they have through their resources. What do you guys think about when you're in the control mirror? Because it's really where I failed the most. Like I felt the most helpless. My thought was I really need a counter spell in my opening hand. And I did mulligan to five to get one. And I was very much rewarded. And I think that's really what it comes down to is you like, and I think that's really an extension of what Stan's saying is you need to win the first counter war. You need to win the first counter war and and land something through that. And that's how you're going to win. Zach, that's, man, you're so smart sometimes. 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 Jeez, burn. <laughs> More than sometimes. But the way you think, I, I'm never, you never cease to amaze me because I never think about Thank you. some of my mulligan strategies when I go into certain matchups. And you having this heuristic seemingly just pulled out of your pocket, I'm really impressed with. It's something I hadn't thought of and I wish I did because I think that's an excellent point. Like, like here's a big mistake I made um, in the mirror was on... Turn three, they had two mana up. I was on the play. I was like, well, if I play this Narset and it sticks, I feel like I can get a lot of advantage here. And then, you know, they Dovin's Veto it, and I'm way behind. They can yeah. untap, play their, own, play their own Narset. And I tried to, you know, I blinked first. I blinked very early because I was like, if this sticks, I'm going to get a lot of advantage out of it. But I didn't remember that if it doesn't stick, I'm way far behind. Yep. Right. You really have to play. There's two games you can play. So it's make them have it or I'll wait till they have it and I have it. And I think make them have it never works in a control mirror. I, I mean, sometimes it does. We talked about that where we talked earlier where I played a merfolk and they dump their hand and it's, hey, if you don't board wipe, I win. Also, I meant the control mirror. 
No, I know, but I think that that lesson moves over as well, where it's, I have this thing, and if you don't have it, it's going to be miserable for you. Yeah, but just to be clear, the the odds that you're talking about between those two situations, Zach, I think are pretty different, right? Okay, that's fair. Because make them have it against a creature deck is you have to have one of your three wraths. Make them have it against in the control mirror is they need to have one of their 10 counter spells that they have or, or whatever, you know what I mean? So it's... It's just, it's a lot more difficult. I mean, in that situation, I do think you sort of have to just wait and wait and wait until, and see who makes the land drops and who has the more, most resources to be able to play a threat backed up by multiple counter spells. I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons that Dispel is in the side, sideboard of this this deck, even though it's a one of, it's incredible in that situation because you can generally play two counter spells to protect something if you have Dispel. Yeah, that's, that's very fair. Thank you. Do you think it's kind of a resource war and that's really who makes all their land drops? Yeah. And that's why you just sort of just sit there oh, and sit dang. back. Yeah. I mean, eventually you do need to throw down and put down one of your card advantage engines. And back in the day, it used to be search for Conta because that's two mana and you could have it up and it would just scry through your deck basically. And that, that was, that was good if you could protect it. You know what I mean? So the first person to land one of those to turn their resources into card advantage, I think is the person who's going to win. Yeah. For sure. The real problem, though, with, with this matchup in some ways is Control has so many cards that are bad against in the Control Mirror and only so many cards that they can bring in. So sometimes you're sort of just like, well, I have to bring, I have to take out these six cards because they do nothing, and I have to bring in these six cards because there's the only ones that, that would do anything in this situation. And so you're still trying to figure out, like, what can I do that actually does anything in this matchup? Right on. So I thought one of the awkward tensions with the mirror was the sideboard decision of how many path to exiles to keep because you can't mm. side them all out because you still need to have an an answer for Celestial Colonnade, if they play an Angel, if they play Vendillion Click, whatever. Yeah, that that's the brutal one really because I I don't think you really need it against Celestial Colonnade because you just have, you have Field of Ruin. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. Right, but you play the chicken game with Lyra Dawnbringer and Baneslayer Angel and whatever that stuff is to see like, okay, how how many big threats are you going to bring in against me in, in this mirror? Is it going to be none? Is it going to be all of them? Are you going to keep your removal? That is an interesting little sub game that happens in, in the control mirror for sure. I mentioned that Dovin's Veto can be a mirror breaker. I think an important interaction that you have to remember when you're trying to get into counter wars and Dovin's Veto's around is... Even though you can't counter Dovin's Veto, you can cast multiple counter spells targeting the same spell from the opponent. Yeah. So sometimes I had at least one game where I got vetoed, but I still had mana up to cast a second counter spell on whatever I was trying to counter in the first place. And I think that can be an almost a blowout of a good way to get around Dovin's Veto that the control mirror might not be anticipating. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something that I mentioned a little bit earlier, where it's kind of like the force of negation that you can only use, you you can only completely effectively use Dovin's veto to knock out a threat from your opponent. It's very hard to use that card to protect your your plans. Same thing with with force of negation. Well, thanks, guys. Um, definitely helped me a little bit, and uh, hopefully helped our newbie control players out there. Wow. We did it, y'all. We blew up the Death Star by piling it into the sun. Amazing. <laughs> I call it the bad sphere. <laughs> so who's going to play control again after this? Ooh. Um, I'll borrow one of you. I'll, if you 
Hmm. Yeah, so I'll loan you if my Jason's. If I would have set aside time ahead, I would play it at an LGS if I could borrow one of your copies for sure. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. I found it really deep and rewarding. Yeah, Zach, I agree with you in that I think it's deep. I think it can be rewarding. It, you definitely have to be in the mood. Yes. Like, you know, I, I'm not just going to pick it up and, and randomly pilot it. I think it would make me a lot better at modern. I think just having to think in the way that I'm going to disrupt someone else's game plan, I think would make you better. You run it through a couple of leagues, you're going to learn something. Yeah. I will, of course, return to it now and again, like an, like an old record that I love to listen to and get out occasionally, even though I feel like I totally agree with Stan that it's my favorite deck to be bad at. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically how I feel. I, I think I only ever want to play Control when the moon is full. And otherwise, I'd rather just play, you know, some blue-red spells deck that has bolts and serum visions. You know, some days you just got to listen to Jimmy Eat World Clarity. Do you, though? It just takes some time. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the middle. All right, y'all. That was fun. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we've got a listener question from one of our patrons. Stay with us. So guys, as is typical now with our Patreon up and running, we we put a thread out to the Dive Down Nation asking them for their questions. So this week, uh, our patron Mark S. asks, was there ever a golden age of modern in your opinions? And if so, when? I like this question. That's why we're answering it. So this question is challenging for me to answer because I've only been playing modern since the last Modern Masters. So my sample size is quite small, but I think if I've learned anything in the last few years of playing this format, it's that the golden age was inside us all along. It's basically whenever you have the best deck in modern and can win the most packs from your LGS. That's usually your (laughs) golden age. Dave, I feel like you have the longest experience. Yeah, I have weird experience with modern too, because I've been a fan of the format the whole time that it's existed. I've had cards for it the whole time that it's existed, but you know, I... You know, I don't get to go to LGSs all that much just because of the way that my kind of free time works. And so I don't really have like a lot of a lot of packs in my in my resume of like, oh, I, I went out and I've I've foroed a whole bunch of LGSs. And until the last year or so, I didn't take the leap to actually rent decks online and start trying to grind modern online. I think that um for me, there's probably two two points that I would think of. So one of them is basically now. Honestly, I think Mm. that we are kind of in an era of modern, you know, we talked about this with Ross Merriam way back on episode 14, I guess, where, you know, you believe that, by the way. Yeah, I know it's been a while ago. Been a while. That modern has been pretty good, realistically, I think, for a couple of years now, as long as you accept modern for what it is, you know, that you are engaged in the format that you recognize that it's a large card pool format and so de- degenerate things can happen i think that that still kind of helps us define that you know we haven't had to ban a ton of decks out of existence it happens but um i feel like we've been in a pretty good era for a while where there's so many decks that are viable that it's it's fun for for people and for uh, uh casual spikes and maybe pros alike yeah that really just echoes my thoughts on it as well that 
I think the golden age is now and has been for a little bit just because of the huge number of, of really honestly playable and viable decks there are. Like people talk about tiers if it's some sort of tier one decks are the best full stop. It's really popularity too. So you can play Soul Sisters at an LGS and you can go 4-0 and you can even take it to a tournament and do okay as well. And I think that Dave's right. You have to know that there's a certain level of buy-in. Like, you can't jam mono-black vampires together with only creatures and do good. Like, you have to know that there are decks that are going to see that and go, okay, well, I win right now. Do you stop me? Or I wrath of God right now. There's no plan for you, is there? So as long as you know, have an idea of what modern is and what you have to do to be competitive, I think it's amazing and you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I started playing between, I think it was, right around when pod got banned and then splinter twin was still legal and then splinter twin got banned and then git probe got banned and so i guess what i'm getting at is there's there's always going to be decks that people say are too good and there's always going to be lament over the fact that you have to have your sideboard hate or you have to have kind of a key card to stop someone else's strategy. And so when you guys are saying, I think the golden age is now, I'm sitting back here thinking, is it really though? Like, is stuff too powerful? Or or do decks have access to so many cards right now that strategies are are too powerful and and too, and winning too consistently? Or, or, you know, we keep, you know, the, the, the adage of ships passing in the night is that we are, we are more than ever, but I look back and I say, well, the power level is maybe just a half turn lighter, but the same complaints were levied against the format. Yeah, I think I'm really going to return to a maxim I've heard you say quite a bit, both on and off the podcast, and that a rising uh, a rising tide brings all ships up, or what, what is the maxim? A rising tide raises all ships? Yeah, more yep. or less. So I think that's true. So I think you're right that the format has gotten faster and has forced some decks out to the margins, but I think it's brought a lot of other decks up with it. Once again, as long as you understand what the the pay-in for this format is. If you're going to play modern competitively, some decks are going to try to win on turn four, and what are you doing about it? So as long as you can accept that and play around that, you can play a lot of different things, but you're right that there is that real buy-in, and there are decks that are going to try to win even on turn two these days. I especially think that I would agree that we are in the golden age of modern now because Wizards of the Coast is directly addressing the format and saying it's maybe a little bit stable. It's a little stale. People want access to some new strategies. We might want to build up some lagging strategies. We're going to inject cards right into the card pool. That's a super exciting time to be a modern player. It's a super exciting time to be modern podcast hosts. We have 200 plus cards just going right into modern that we can respond to. And I think that's going to usher in even more of a golden age where we see people testing new decks, people trying new strategies, people maybe building up their uh, their old Obzon decks that aren't really hanging with the rest of them. And I think it's going to be rad to see what happens, even if six months from now, the, the number of variety of decks that we're seeing is a little bit less. We at least have the experimentation, and I think we'll have experimentation for a long time because there's so many cards to look at here. And it's Modern Horizons 1. It's a, there's a 1 after it. They plan on doing some more. I'm holding out for Modern Horizons 666. All the cards are red and black. That's a lot of sets from now. Yeah, well, Magic is going to go on forever, right? Yeah, Magic, uh, Magic 4500. Yeah. The US 40XX. <laughs> Somebody set us up the bomb. Yes. <laughs> All your basic lands are belong to us. 
Oh, man. Nice. Yeah, thanks, Mark, for the great question. Mark is a loyal dive-down nationier, active on our Slack channel, tweets at us. We're not only accepting questions from the Patreon. If someone tweets or emails us a great question, it's obviously being considered, but we like having this centralized place to have that conversation with our fans every week. So check out the Patreon if you want to look into that as well. I think that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as they come out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. We typically have fun conversations in our thread every week. Remember to join our Patreon. We're excited to get it rolling, to interact with our patrons, and reach our stretch goals to make some really cool stuff for you all. You can find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and counter a spell! So I do have a legit question before we get rolling. It's about slang, because you know I love to ask you young guys about slang. Why do people say stand for things now? Eminem. Eminem. But what does that mean? There's an Eminem like the, song like called the, Stand. Like the, song, the song with Dido? Yeah, I remember that, but they so, on Twitter all of a sudden fan, the last And that is called weeks. Stan? So like the oh. fan that's obsessed over him? Yeah, why is this it? coming out of nowhere? Sincerely, you're like, Stan. Truly, you're the biggest fan. In Game of okay. D Slim, I wrote you, but you still ain't calling. Give yeah, it a song is twenty years old. Yeah, it's like super old. <laughs> yes, and and you, may, or, sorry, your friend's Voltron, which is like from the nineteen sixties. So maybe you can watch it. <laughs> yeah, Fair. you still unironically say Japanimation. <laughs> mm. Toss salad and scrambled stands. <laughs>